Well, how good is it to be able to get in a God's word together? When we pray, Father, please teach us now what it means that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Amen. I want to start today with a little game show. Uh, there's prizes up for grabs and Aaron's not eligible because uh, he's cheated. Uh, <laughs> it's a little game of who said, okay? Tell me who said these various things. Uh, who said, I am the greatest? Muhammad, I heard John there. Uh, here we go, John. These are probably no good for your false teeth. But uh, no, <laughs> uh, there you go. We've got minties, the minties this morning. Uh, Muhammad Ali, and I think it was before he became world champion, before he fought Sonny Lister, uh, he de just declared he was going to beat him, I am the greatest, and he said again afterwards. Uh, who said then, oh sorry, he's Muhammad Ali in his glory, um, who said, uh, uh, be not afraid of greatness, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Anyone? Uh, I heard, who was that? Sh yes, it's Shakespeare. Hang on. <laughs> I'm, I'm channeling Gary Nicholson, the former minister. Uh, he used to throw minties around like a madman. Anyway, I, I even clocked people in the head and doing it. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, I've got, Aaron's going to be a runner. There you go. Um, uh, Shakespeare, uh, do you know which play it was in? It's got to do with a number. No. It's, uh, it's, it, and it comes after 11 and before 13. The Twelfth Night. There you go. Oh, well done. You just knew that, didn't you, John? There you go. The Twelfth Night. Well, and here you go, the grand prize. Which character said it? Anyone? Well, I'll, I'll keep that one. Uh, the answer is Malvolio. There you go. Uh, who was prancing around uh, in uh, his outfit the whole time. He's a, a kind of perverse, strange character. Uh, he's planning for his own ascent into greatness. Uh, anyone, well, you, if you don't know it was Malvoli, do you know what his plan was to achieve greatness? Uh, he said, You've got to show I'm going to show contempt for servants. Uh, I'm going to let the tang of politics uh, flavour my tongue. I'm going to talk about politics all the time. Aaron's hero. Uh, and, and the last and greatest part of his plan, wear yellow tights. Uh, there you go. That's, that's what's going to get you greatness. Well, here's the trickiest one here. Uh, you shall, without question, find a way to the top if you diligently seek for it. For nature has placed nothing so high that it is out of reach. Oh. It does sound like Oprah. Uh, it sounds like any modern, well, it sounds like Tony Robbins, uh, any of the uh, inspirational speakers these days who are telling you, uh, go get it. But it was, in fact, Alexander the Great. <laughs> Alexander the Great, uh, who's the same guy who wept when there were no more worlds to conquer. Because he got to the edge of India and hit the sea and went, Oh, is that it? I've got it all. Uh, he said there's nothing so high that it's out of reach. Uh, I doubt very much that Alexander the Great ever wore yellow tights uh, in conquering the world. 
Now, I bring them up uh, because although I doubt any of us here are dreaming of reaching the giddy heights of any of those guys, uh, it's incredibly easy for us to become consumed with thoughts and worries about status, about getting ahead, about being great in our own little world. Uh, it's there in the office, isn't it? It's there at the school gate. Uh, you see it in the jockeying for position, even, even amongst uh, people involved in uh, charitable organisations. Uh, the pecking order is just all around us, isn't it? And maybe you've, you know your place in it, and maybe you want to be up a couple of rungs. We might like to say that it doesn't bother us all that much, but the truth comes out as someone doesn't give us the respect we feel like we deserve. Deep down, we're all worried what other people think of us, and so often it's other people's opinions about us that shape what we do, what we say, where we go, who we associate with. It shapes the clothes we wear. Why does Malvolio think yellow tights are the way to the top? Well, because uh, the girl of his dreams once complimented him for him. Uh, I think she had a tongue-in-cheek when she did it, but he's convinced that's what she wants. Uh, it, it influences the cars we drive, the street we live in, where we want to retire to. And, and no one is completely immune from this desire for greatness, even as it turns out, Jesus' disciples. It's not normally expressed so blatantly, but in our passage, they come to Jesus and ask the audacious question in verse 1, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I presume they didn't ask that out of idle curiosity uh, or as if they were just wondering or so they could go and congratulate whoever it was that was out there. It was out of pride, wanting to be the one, wanting the inside running so they could jockey each other out of the position for the race for the greatest in God's kingdom. We know on several other occasions they got into heated discussions about it even after this interaction and on one occasion James and John even get their mum to come and ask Jesus outright to guarantee them the best two places in the kingdom of heaven at Jesus' right hand and left hand. And yet as we're about to see it's just another example of the disciples completely missing the point of what Jesus is on about, about who he is and the kingdom he's bringing about. And Jesus is going to give them an answer to the question, who is the greatest? An answer that flies in the face of all that they know and all that we know about greatness. See, there is a way to greatness in God's kingdom, but it's nothing like anyone would expect. In fact, when we hear the answer, we might find it very hard to hear because it challenges the very core of our being and how we operate. But this is God's way. And this is God's idea of greatness. And if you want to be great in his kingdom, you should listen, as the voice from heaven said, listen to him, listen to what his son has to say. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, to answer the question, what Jesus does is give an object lesson, which gets to the very heart of the matter. And then he spells out in what that will look like in four different ways. We're only going to deal with the first three today and when Dave gets the last one next week uh, because it's a doozy. We thought we'd treat that one on its own. But Jesus starts answering the question with his object lesson. You see it in verse 2. He called a small child, had him stand among them 
He said, truly I tell you that unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does he mean by that? You have to turn and become like a child. It's obviously something you don't start with by nature if you've got to turn and do it. Uh, And notice it's not just to be great in the kingdom of God, it's to even be in it in the first place. What is it about little children that Jesus wants us to turn and become like? Well, lots of people reckon it's their innocence, their purity, uh, how, how lovely they are, their pure hearts, which just shows they don't have any themselves. <laughs> uh, I love my children, and I'm sure that you love your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whoever they might be, but you know, and I know, they can be right little monsters. Uh, what's the one word you never have to teach a child? No. Uh, even babies know how to be defiant. Don't put that in my mouth. <laughs> right, if they had the words to say it, they'd be censored, right? <laughs> um, you can see it in their eyes, their beady lies. You know, uh, think of the toddler sitting in a high chair who's been told a dozen times not to play with their food, who looks at you in the eyes, scoops up the handful of mush, dangles it over the edge of the tray. And, you know, the eyes just say, I dare you to stop me. (laughs) Jesus knows, we know it's not about innocence. And thank God it's not, because none of us is completely innocent, are we? If it required purity of heart to be in the kingdom of God, well, we'd all be goners, like the king of Tyre. And neither is Jesus talking about cuteness. Little kids are pretty cute, which is a great blessing from God so that we don't forget them entirely, the little rat bags. Anyway, we can't just bat our eyelids at God and say, shucks, so God won't stay angry with us like your parents. Uh, So what is it about little children that we have to turn to become like? Well, Jesus explains it. He says, whoever humbles himself like a little child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom. How is it that children are humble? Well, I think Jesus got two things in mind. The first one is status. Uh, It's been the same through human history. How are children regarded and treated? Well, as as nobodies, you know, you might like them, you might love them, but but they don't make the important decisions. Uh, They don't call the shots. And when you're over them, you call someone else, their father or (laughs) the babysitter, to come and take them off your hands so that you can do what you want to do, right? Because what you want is more important than what they want and need. Jesus is saying, you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, let alone be truly great in it. You've got to accept this new status of, of nobody. You've got to turn from the world's way of thinking and stop pursuing that sort of respect and status like everyone else is doing. You've got to accept that actually there's nothing you can do or try uh, or have which is going to earn your way into his kingdom. Acknowledge your status as someone who doesn't deserve to be in God's kingdom. Which leads to the second thing Jesus means by being humble like a little child, and that is dependence. Little children are completely dependent on their parents or guardians to provide for them. 
They don't put the bread on the table. They don't put the roof over the family's head. They don't have the means to buy clothes or toys or anything. All they can do is cry for what they need, whether it's food or a nappy change or warmer clothes or just a cuddle. And, and you soon learn as a parent which cries which so you can deal with it appropriately. And so Jesus isn't just saying get off the rat race like everyone else and forget earning your way into heaven. He's also saying you've got to be completely dependent on him to get in. And while he doesn't spell it out here, he's been teaching them already what it is they'll really need to depend on him for. They don't believe him yet, but he's been telling them several times, in fact, that he's heading to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, killed, arrested, well, arrested, then killed. Um, but the, the death he is going to is not one he deserved himself. If there was anyone who was completely innocent of all sin, it was Jesus Christ. Now, he was going to die on a Roman cross for us. As he's going to say in chapter 20, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is, don't you? You may have seen Mel Gibson's movie, Ransom. Uh, It's what you pay to get back someone who's been kidnapped. Right? They they can't pay it. They're in slavery. (laughs) Someone needs to pay it for them. And what Jesus is saying is that because of our sin, we've all been taken captive to death, and we've been taken captive to Satan whose lies have seduced us away from God in the first place and brought dead, and we're facing judgment, and on that day, like the king of Tyre, we're all going to be found wanting because we've thought we are gods. But in going to the cross, Jesus is going to pay the ransom for us. He's going to pay for us by taking on himself everything we're owed for our sin. He's going to take the wrath of God at our defiance he's going to take the death penalty that we've earned he's going to take the condemnation we deserve you want to be in the kingdom you want to be great in the kingdom learn from jesus object lesson of the little child accept your status that you cannot earn your way in and become completely dependent on him for your ticket home is that you Have you turned and become humble like that? If there's nothing else that you get out of today, take that to heart. You can't earn your way in. All you can do is humbly accept this greatest of all gifts paid for by Jesus. Throw yourself on his mercy. You don't have to bite and claw your way to the top like in the corporate world. You don't have to climb the greasy ladder by stepping on other people's fingers. You won't get there like the King of Tyre thought he did by the power of his own hands and determination. You just need Jesus to get you there. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's the object lesson. But he's going to move on to a series of principles to help spell out what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, Four marks of greatness... Uh, all of which flow from following Jesus who's on his way to the cross and again all completely opposite to the way the world thinks. If you're going to be humble like a little child, what does it look like? Well, 
Well, the first mark of greatness is how we deal with the other children. You see that in verse 5. Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone uh, around his neck and he would drown in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences, for offences will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offence comes. And so here's the first mark of being humble like little children. We'll welcome others who are also children like us and we won't seek to cause them to stumble. He's not talking about playing nice when we're running kids' programs if we have to fill in at creche or anything like that. He's talking about the way that we deal with other Christians, our brothers and sisters who've also humbled themselves before Jesus and received his mercy and become like this little child. First thing he says is we'll receive them like we've received Jesus. He's talking about the way he expects us to treat each other, love each other, look out for each other, look after each other, be there for each other. I mean, look around. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, And and there are more of them than just in this room. Uh, It's the opposite of the way the world approaches relationships. The world works on the basis of what can you get out of the other person? The world says you want to get ahead in life, well, only hang out with the winners, the people who are like you, the people who have something to offer you, the people you get on with. Jesus says true greatness is to love his people, whoever they are, which you can only do if you realise that you are a little child like them, a dependent nobody accepted on the basis of his love and mercy. It means that we, we won't value them on the basis that this world does. I mean, you know, the kind of ways that people just look at each other and, and make the decisions about the pecking order. You know, rich, poor, fat, thin, interesting, boring, ugly, good-looking, pleasant to be with, soul-sucking. It's... It, I mean, it's always been hard for me being thin and good-looking and you know, charming, and <laughs> as if, anyway. We, we do it instinctively, don't we? We're because we're figuring out uh, who to receive and pour our time into, who, who, we, can, uh, who we can best in the pecking order. You know, we're, we're, just, we're weighing them up where we fit. But Christ will have none of it. Jesus gave his life for these people who are we to despise them? And on the flip side, it'll mean not causing them to stumble, whether by our rejection, because we value people the way the world does, or because we require them to be more like us to win our affection, or whether it's because we've led them into sin in some way, maybe by our example, um, uh, maybe it's by endorsing things that God hates, or even just brushing off sin as insignificant and saying, don't worry about it. Jesus says, better to have a great millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. You know, better to wear concrete boots and be thrown into the harbour. Challenging stuff, right? Better to be drowned quickly than lead another Christian astray and away from Jesus. 
So that's the first mark of greatness in God's kingdom, how you deal with other Christians. But there's a second mark of true greatness according to Jesus and that is how you deal with your own sin. That's in verse 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Going on in sin is not a matter of insignificance. Some people want to say, well, if Jesus has paid for sin, well, it doesn't matter what you do, just, just live it up. I mean, he's good for it. I mean, he's, he's got grace. Sleep around, be greedy, live for yourself, play by the world's rules. What does it matter? Well, sin matters to God. Pride matters to God. Right? It matters so much that there's hell to pay for it. And you can tell how much it matters to God because he sent his son to the cross to stop us going to hell. He didn't die for our sins so we could go on wallowing in the muck and the filth. He died for us because that's what we were doing. And he calls us out of it to be washed clean and to start fresh. He died for you that you might belong to him. You might know the wisdom and power of his ways. That you might know real life, which is a life lived for God, pleasing him in every way. And so Jesus says when it comes to your own sin and my own sin, we've got to act radically and decisively to get rid of it. Radically and decisively. And to drive home the point he gives, one of the most gruesome images in the old Bible, right? Like gouging your eye out. Like, uh, I've always had a fear of things touching my eyes and it's like, it's like that would be the worst thing. He's saying that's not the worst thing, there's something even worse, going to hell. So if that's, if that's going to be the thing that stops you going there, do it. Cut your hand off. I don't know if you remember the news a few years ago uh, about a man named Aaron Rolston. This guy, uh, mountainy adventurer kind of guy, he was hiking through Blue John Canyon in Utah when he fell. Uh, he slipped down the slope. He survived the fall pretty well, uh, but he dislodged a boulder that landed and pinned his right arm. Uh, and despite his best and prolonged efforts, he just could not work his arm out from behind the boulder. It was stuck, he was stuck, and after five days of crying out for help, no one heard. With his rations of food and water gone, it became clear that his only hope of survival was going to be to amputate his own arm with a penknife that he had. That's not an easy task. Not easy to do it on someone else, <laughs> let alone yourself. No anaesthetic, but if he doesn't do it, he'll die. And so he did it, and now he's got one arm. But he lived. If your hand or foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. 
Jesus isn't saying it to gross us out. He's saying it because sin really matters. What we need is not to indulge our sin, it's not to cherish our sin, it's not to tolerate our own sin. What we need to do is to act radically and decisively to get rid of whatever is the problem in your life, get rid of it. For some of us, we're not even aware of our own sin. We're just oblivious and we get on and we're doing life in blissful ignorance. Well, if that's you, you're thinking, oh, I don't know what Jesus will be talking about in my life. Well, uh, here's an easy place to start. Get Colossians or Ephesians, one of those couple of books that read the second half of it where it just spells out the new life. This is what evil looks like, you know, from the way you talk, the way you think, to how you treat people. Uh, and here's the ways of God. And ask yourself at each point, I mean, maybe even write a diary, write out the list and say, how am I going at each point? Can I tick that box? You know, you want to tick the good ones or the bad ones. Anyway, but, but maybe you go, oh, actually, I am struggling in that area. How am I going with bitterness towards other people? And if I find that it's there, how can I get rid of it decisively, radically? How, can I, how am I going with... Uh, uh, being sexually pure in my mind and in my body how am i going with greed how am i going with joy and thankfulness as well but for others we already know what jesus is talking about we know the sin we're secretly harboring the things which god hates which we're cherishing and refusing to let go of and he says if that's you it's time to do some real soul searching and take action don't let Jesus' words just wash over you. Do an Aaron Ralston. Pull out the penknife, the spiritual penknife maybe, and cut it off, cut it out, whatever it is. If it's the TV, chuck it out. If it's, you don't need one, like whatever it is. That's the second mark of true greatness. Then the third is how you think about the lost. Verse 10, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones shall perish. Now, <laughs> it might be easy to be distracted as I was through the week by the bit in verse 10 about their angels in heaven. Who are they? are angels in heaven. Have I got an angel in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> it's where the people, people get the idea of guardian angels from, actually, this verse. Um, but what most people say about guardian angels has really got nothing to do with the Bible and usually contradicts what the Bible says elsewhere. This is the only phrase where the Bible uses that phrase, uh, uses that phrase, their angels in heaven, uh, and Jesus isn't interested in explaining it. <laughs> and so he kind of just leaves us hanging there. But the point that he's making is absolutely clear. And it's the story of the farmer and the sheep. It's an obvious point. One of the sheep goes astray. What would it look like to despise that one sheep? It would simply be do nothing. Do nothing. 
just hang out with the others in the comfy fold, carrying on as usual. That's how you despise that one. But for the shepherd in Jesus' story, how much of the flock together is good enough? It's not 50%. It's not 75%. It's not even 99% of the flock together is good enough. The one sheep matters. Jesus wants us to know what our Father in heaven is like. Verse 14, in the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now that one sheep might be a Christian brother or sister now who is struggling with a particular sin that they're not cutting out with a penknife or they're just following the world or maybe they're being led off by some strange teaching. Whatever it is, they're heading away from Christ. What's our attitude towards them? Is it right to do nothing? In Jesus' mind, that's not greatness, that's hopeless and shows we really haven't grasped what really matters. That there is eternity on the line and so have God's heart and chase them. Or perhaps the one sheep might be one who's not yet in the fold. We don't know all the non-believers we interact with and live amongst that might, might actually be one of Jesus' sheep in the end. Jesus is showing us what really matters, what true greatness it looks like. He's calling us to share the truth that will set them free, that he has died as a ransom, paid for them to come home, call them to come find life, to come and be part of God's wonderful kingdom and family, calling them to give up on the world's wisdom and the world's ways of seeking greatness and to come like a little child and receive God's love and mercy. People say it's arrogant to share the gospel as if you know something better. Well, you do know something better than them. And it's not about your greatness, it's about Jesus' greatness, right? It's not arrogant to share the gospel. Sharing the gospel is one beggar showing another beggar how to find bread. Do you have this heart for those who are lost or those who are heading that way? These are the marks of greatness. Well, three of them anyway. Three marks of being humble like a little child. The fourth one will come to next week. Don't miss it. Uh, it's super challenging, but I, I think if you haven't faced the issues that are there, you will. Uh, there's struggles that Christians all face, and so make sure you're here next week. But these are the marks of greatness in God's kingdom. The disciples came to Jesus as we might, thinking like the world wanting the secret to true greatness. What do I have to do? True greatness is not found in pounding your opponents into a bloody pulp like Muhammad Ali, who in the end was bested by someone younger and stronger. And he's died now, and all his achievements, great as they were, count for nothing in the kingdom of God. Neither is true greatness found in conquering the world, as Alexander the Great did, only to find it was all empty and he wept because there was nothing left to conquer. And then he got killed on his way home. He was too cocky for his own good. Nothing he built survived the next generation. Greece does not run the world. And it's certainly not found in talking down to servants, reading politics and wearing yellow tights as Malvolio found out to his chagrin. 
It's found in receiving the kingdom of God like a little child and bearing the marks of that humility in how you deal with other believers, accepting them, not causing them to stumble, in how you deal with your own sin and having God's heart for the lost and those going astray. It all comes from knowing Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words and challenging to our hearts and the way we normally think, the way the world is that we're part of. We pray, please, that you'll help us to be humble, to know, actually, we, we don't get to heaven. All we can do is depend on you. And we pray, please, that it will change how we view other believers, that we will love them, look out for them, and not drive them away. We pray, please, that it will influence how we deal with our sin, that we, we would know that you hate it and that it's not good for us. And so we pray, please, if we know what it is already, to, to deal with it radically, decisively. And we pray, please, that you'll give us your heart for those going astray, that we would chase them hard, that we would know your love for them, and we pray for those who are lost around us, that we might share Jesus in the hope that they might come and be part of your fold. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing of his greatness. <laughs>